Hi, and welcome to the March 3rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's reading is Numbers chapter 26 through 28, and then Mark chapter 8. Once again, that's Numbers 26, 27, and 28, and Mark chapter 8. Now, if you've read those passages, uh, feel free to keep on listening. But if you've not read them, then I want to encourage you to hit pause, go back, read God's Word for yourself, listen to what the Holy Spirit would say to you from the reading of His Word, and then come back and listen to uh, some of the comments that I will have on these texts. But uh, but if you're start if you're ready, let's get started. Okay, so when we come to Numbers chapter 26, we come to one of the chapters that is the very reason why this book has come to be known as Numbers, uh, because there's just a lot of numbers. There's a second census that is done. Uh, There was uh, an earlier census that was done uh, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt 40 years earlier. But now the 40 years wilderness wandering has transpired. They're now getting ready to go into the promised land. And so another census, the second census has been done. And uh, so that's what we see here. What we see is the number of men uh, 20 years old, and we assume up to 50 years of age in each tribe. Uh, because this that, that was the group that would uh, be expected to be in the Israelite army and to go out to war. So realize that when you're looking at these numbers, um, it's men 20 to 50 years of age. So you can double that uh, roughly and say, okay, that's the population of men and women 20 to 50. But then that still doesn't include the men and women over 50 years of age and the boys and girls and the teenage boys and girls that are less than 20. And so there's just an enormous amount of people. But uh, one of the one of the things, and there, there's quite a few things that we could bring out, but uh, you know, we've got uh, four chapters to look at today. So let's just be kind of brief uh, when we're looking at Numbers 26. Uh, the thing that I want us to see here is that Simeon's tribe is the smallest of all. In fact, considerably smaller than some of the others. Uh, than most of the others. And uh, so we have to wonder why. Why was Simeon's tribe so much smaller than the others? Well, it may be, the answer may be tucked away in the previous chapter, in the uh, chapter that we read last uh, yesterday, and it was in Numbers chapter 25, verses 14 and 15, when we realize that the Israelite leader Uh, that brought the Moabite woman to his tent and was killed by Phinehas, he was a Simeonite. And so it very well could be that the Simeonites were primarily or maybe solely the tribe that prostituted itself with Baal. Maybe it wasn't all of the tribes in Israel. Maybe it was just the Simeonites. And so when we read in Numbers chapter 25, that about 24,000 were killed. 
might that be the reason why the Simeonite tribe is so is so much smaller uh, for this second census because they were they could have been the tribe that experienced the brunt of that plague uh, of the 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 Lord's wrath being poured out on them if in fact they were the ones who were primarily the ones who were worshiping Baal. Uh, the other thing that I want you to notice is uh, when we look at the census, the grand total of the men, 20 to 50 years of age, um, in this second census, we see the number in Numbers chapter 26, verse 51, and it's 601,730. 601,730. But if you go back to the original census in Numbers chapter 1, go back 40 years earlier, Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, that number is 603,550. And so there's, there's about a 2,000 number difference. It's really not that substantial at all. And so it seems as if that the number of fighting men, because remember, um, the uh, the Israelites failed to go into the promised land. The Lord said, okay, you know what? Every uh, adult that's 20 years and older, everybody, not just male, but female, everybody 20 years and older, you will die in the next 40 years. Every one of you will die in the next 40 years, except for Joshua and Caleb. And so what we see now is that uh, in Numbers 26, the grand total is within about 2,000 of the number that they had 40 years earlier. So the Lord has seen fit to replenish them um, so that, you know, their fighting army is still equally as strong. It's just the kids. Now, when I say kids, realize that if there was, um, you know, if there was a 19-year-old uh, that uh, was alive, the 19-year-olds that were alive, let's say a 19-year-old male that was alive whenever the 12 spies came back and Sin said, no, we can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we could. And so God said, okay, everybody 20 years old, no older, you're going to die in the next 40 years. Well, that 19-year-old is now uh, 59, He's now 59. So it's not like they're all young, but uh, but the oldest person, except for Joshua and Caleb and Moses, uh, would be a 59-year-old. Okay, so that's Numbers 26. Okay, so let's look at Numbers 27. There's two significant things that are dealt with here. Uh, the first is in verses 1 through 11, and we realize about um, a situation where in a very male patriarchal society, um, a culture, and this wasn't just the Israelites, it was every culture across the, uh, the sphere, um, there was a there was a man uh, Zelophehad who had died. Apparently, he had, he had committed a sin, his own sin, and uh, and his daughters saw that he had died because of his sin. Whether it was God's judgment or whether while he was sinning, maybe drunk or something, something happened and he died. We're not sure, but his daughter said that he died because of his sin. Well, he has five daughters. He doesn't have a son. Well, when in a in a very male patriarchal society or in a culture, um, the uh, property 
would uh, be handed down to the son. And uh, then from the son, it would be handed down to his son. And so the, so not only that, not only the inheritance, but also as the Israelites are preparing to go in to take the promised land, land would be allocated, but it would be allocated to the men. And so these five daughters brought this concern to Moses and said, this isn't right. This isn't just. Our father's name is going to just disappear from the face of the earth. Now they could, they, they probably would end up marrying men and they would be recipients of the property that their husband would have. So then it would now belong to them. But they weren't content with that. Um, they uh, wanted their dad's name, even be- even though they knew he died because of his sin, whatever that sin was, they didn't want his name, his heritage to be erased from the Israelite um, uh, story. And so they went to Moses and said, this isn't right. Our dad had no son with which to um, I'll have land allocated to him when we go into the promised land. And so let us have land. Let us have that. And so uh, Moses went to the Lord and the Lord's determination, as we read in chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, is that the Lord essentially agreed with them and said that if uh, you know if a man dies without having a son, transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And so this was a very unusual thing in that uh, in that time and in cultures is to acknowledge the 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 worthiness of a daughter to be able to receive the inheritance from her father. Uh, once again, it was a very male, very, very patriarchal society and a world that they lived in. Uh, but the Lord has always been about the business of elevating women, of elevating women. And so we see that in verses 1 through 11. Uh, in verses 12 through 23, we see that uh, Joshua is commissioned to succeed Moses. Now, I know that we're in numbers and you're thinking, now, wait a second, we've got a whole big thick book of Deuteronomy to read before Joshua goes into the promised land. And so how can we be so close to the time that Joshua is going to take him in? Well, I want you to know that Deuteronomy is, is by and large a rehash of everything that the Lord has already told them. Uh, it's going to be one long, well, not one long, but it's going to be a lengthy um, discourses that Moses has has with the people of Israel. And much of the stuff we see in Deuteronomy is just a rehash. And uh, so I do want you to realize that even though there's a book after this, the book primarily of, of laws, that as we are here in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, the Israelites are very shortly going to be going into the promised land. So they needed a leader. Moses was going to die because he had committed the sin of striking the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. He broke the picture. And this was a very serious thing in the Lord's eyes. And so the Lord commissioned Joshua to be Moses' successor. And um, I... Also, I think it's uh, significant that the Lord wasn't content for Joshua just to be handpicked and uh, for this to be private. God knew that in order to build credibility and buy-in with the Israelites, that this would have to be a public conference of authority. And so the Lord uh, told Moses to bestow and confer his authority on Joshua in public so that the people would see and accept him as their new leader. 
Okay, so Numbers 28. Now I'll go over this fairly quickly because it's just a bunch of offerings and, and we've read about these things. Um, but in verses 1 through the first part of verse 3, it's just an introduction talking about that the Lord has given uh, his own prescribed offerings uh, for the people of Israel to participate in. In uh, the second part of verse 3 through verse 8, we realize that there were daily offerings to be made. Every single day, there were sacrifices, there were offerings given up to the Lord. Verses 9 and 10, there was Sabbath offerings. Sabbath offerings. Verses 11 through 15, there were monthly offerings. There was that This was the offering that was to be given once a month. Um, verses 16 through 25, uh, we read that there were offerings for the Passover, for that. Um, and also, I mean, we would just, you know, just acknowledge that when we're talking about Passover, that's one time a year. That's one time a year the Passover lamb is slain. Uh, but also realize that there was one time a year the Day of Atonement happened. And so there, there's the annual offerings that took place. Um, and then, you know, speaking of that, we get to verses 26 through 31, and it's the offering for the Feast of Weeks. This is the 50 weeks. Uh, this is them celebrating God's um, faithfulness and his harvest. And so this is just, it made perfect sense to them, but as New Testament saints, we don't see any uh, specific, direct relationship to our life because there are no there's no longer a reason to sacrifice like this anymore it, it serves no purpose no purpose at all but what it does do is we can take the general principle out of it and drop it down into our life and we can see that the lord in the old testament called his people to sacrifice and to offer up offerings offer up sacrifices to him daily Weekly, monthly, annually, he wanted them to offer up sacrifices to him. So what's the general principle that we would drop down into our life? It would simply be this. The Lord wants us to offer up our life as a sacrifice of praise to him. That we're not supposed to live to ourselves. We are to offer ourselves up as a pleasing sacrifice to him. Um... And so I just want you to, to realize that as we look at the Old Testament, uh, there are the, the obvious things that we see, and we are not to apply that in the New Testament because we live under a new covenant. But there are general principles that we can draw out. And uh, that, as I look at that, that's what I, as I look at uh, Numbers 28, that's what I see. That it's the general principle is, is that... Uh, you know, there were offerings that were made to the Lord uh, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. And I, now in the New Testament, am to offer up my life and to live my life as a sacrifice of praise to him. I'm to worship him and enjoy him and serve him and submit and, and obey him. And uh, so this is, this is what God's called us to do. And we see that in an Old Testament picture in all of the offerings in Numbers 28. Okay, so let's look at Mark 8 now. In Mark 8, verses 1 through 10, we see uh, the 
feeding of the 4,000. This wasn't the feeding of the 5,000 men. This is the feeding of the 4,000. And uh, in this, Jesus demonstrates his compassion on the people's physical needs. He doesn't just care about our spiritual needs. He cares about our physical needs. And uh, I'm telling you that in so much of church life, if we're not careful, we will focus only on the spiritual, only on the spiritual. But I believe that as we look at Jesus, he didn't just come to eradicate or actually to deal the death blow to sin. He also came to deal the death blow to the consequences of sin, right? Uh, we live in a world of brokenness, of pain, sickness, sorrow, and death. Those are the consequences of sin. If there was no sin, there would be none of those things. And so Jesus, once again, didn't come just to deal the death blow to sin on the cross, but he came to deal a death blow to the consequences of sin by vacating the tomb. Death was a result of sin, and Jesus defeated that by coming out of the grave. And so I, I do, I, I think that in many of our churches, if we're not careful, we focus almost solely on the spiritual. But, uh, but if we are to do ministry as Jesus did ministry, then we are to strive to reach the whole person. The first and foremost thing that people need is the gospel. If we do anything else for them, it is ultimately wasted in the grand scheme of eternity if they do not spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. So the first thing that is of utmost importance to everybody is sharing the gospel, giving them an opportunity to hear it, to understand it, and to embrace it, to trust in King Jesus. But as Christians, that is not the only thing we are to do. When we look at Jesus, we realize that there are tons of other things that we can and should do because people are just just not spiritual. They're also physical, so they have physical needs. People aren't just physical and spiritual. They're also emotional, so they have emotional needs. Uh, people are also, um, I mean, relational, so they have relationship needs and all sorts of things. There are all sorts, and, and in these needs, there are also, um, uh, there's also dysfunction in all of those things. And so when we see Jesus meeting people at their point of need, in, including in verses 1 through 10 of Mark 8, that he fed people. I mean, we would think, oh, that's not spiritual. That's, that's Yes, it was. Jesus saw that they had a need, and so he met the need. And it also offered him an opportunity to demonstrate how much he cared for them, and it also gave him an opportunity to teach them. And uh, so when we're thinking about church life and when we're thinking about what we do, yes, the gospel is of utmost importance. Without the gospel, everything else is just... I mean, if, if we feed uh, a man who is desperately hungry, he's lost, and he's desperately hungry, and we feed him a meal, but we don't share the gospel to him, and he dies right after eating that meal, then all we did is watch a, hung, a, a full man go to hell. And so the most important thing is the gospel. But even as we share the gospel... We've got to care for people and say, what do they need and how might I be able to help them in that? Um, so anyway, I just I just want, want us to think about that. 
we're not just spiritual beings. Jesus didn't just reach out and meet people's spiritual needs. He met them in their tangible needs as well. And we've got to do that as well. So we see in verses 11 and tw uh, through 21, uh, Jesus warned about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And uh, the disciples did not understand Jesus whenever he said that. And they were wondering about, oh, we didn't, we didn't bring bread. And so he reprimanded them. He corrected them. I think the thing he was frustrated with is that, they, that he quickly, he, he, was, he was talking about spiritual things. And a lot of times their brains just weren't on that wavelength. Jesus met more than spiritual needs, but when he was talking, a lot of times he was thinking spiritually. He was thinking deep principles, and yet they weren't getting that. They weren't getting that. And so um, he he reprimanded them for that, for not thinking spiritually about this. But um, I just want you to realize that what Jesus was warning about when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and, uh, and Herod, Leaven is yeast, and yeast permeates. It influences. You put a little in some dough, and it'll take over the whole thing. It'll take over the whole thing. And so what Jesus was saying is, you watch out for the influence of the Pharisees and Herod. They are messed up in their theology. Be careful when you get around them, because they're going to try to influence you with their teachings, and it's false. So that's what Jesus was saying, and I think that that is so relevant to today. We've got to be so careful who we listen to, um, not just pastors and, and Bible teachers, but we need to be careful of what programming we, we listen to and watch on television and what music we listen to and what things that they promote and what things they make light of and things that they, they teach aren't that big of a deal. Friend, I'm telling you, if you're spending a 15-minute quiet time with the Lord each day, but you're spending 30 minutes to an hour or more sitting in front of secular programming that's essentially mocking a biblical worldview as it celebrates adultery and, and everything else, you're putting uh, the leaven of, not the Pharisees and Herod, you're putting the leaven, you're putting the yeast of the world in your mind. Be so careful about who you put yourself in the place of because it will influence you. Okay, then we see in verses 22 through 26, the healing of a blind man. And I want you to know that this is the only miracle. And, and I, you know, maybe some of y'all can reflect on this and give some of your ideas on the Facebook group uh, page. But this is the only miracle where the healing didn't happen completely the first time. When Jesus, you know, uh, Jesus spit in the man's eyes, or at least had spit, and he put it in the man's eyes, and, you know, the, the man, Jesus said, okay, what do you see? And he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees. In other words, it was really blurry. That's like me trying to read a book up close without my glasses on. It, you know, I see, I see letters and words, but they're all blurry. And uh, it, it sounds like that's what was going on. So the miracle was not complete. Now, there was no deficiency on Jesus' part. We know that. We believe that. But something didn't happen. I, I wonder, I'm just speculating, but I, I know that there were times when Jesus said, 
according to your be it done unto you according to your faith or because they did not believe he was not able to do many great miracles there and so even though the work is always from the lord there is some weight little bit of weight that's put on the trust and the faith of the person to trust in jesus and to believe that he is capable and in fact will do it and so i wonder we're not told this in the text, but I wonder if the reason this miracle did not happen initially at first was not complete. And this, is, like I said, is the only miracle that did not fully restore this man um, after the first attempt. It took Jesus once again placing his hands on the man's eyes and then his sight was restored. I just wonder if it was the man's trust. Um, I am not saying the man's faith. I'm not saying the man's faith. And the reason I make that distinction is faith healers today say that if, you know, you don't, if you've got to name it and claim it, and if you don't get uh, the healing from the Lord, well, you just don't have enough faith. They're putting all of the weight on your faith or on anybody's faith. They're putting all of the weight. I'm not saying that. Our, our, we are not the ones who can will healing. We aren't the ones who can will that sight is restored. That has to be a work of the Lord. He has to be the one that determines that he's going to do that. Our job is simply to trust. It's it's the word faith, but, but the word faith is being so misused um, in our current culture. And so I think the word trust is a much better word. And trust isn't something that I see as my work. Trust is just resting in what Jesus is doing. Um, and so I think that maybe what was going on is maybe the, the man wasn't fully trusting the Lord. And so maybe that's why the miracle didn't happen. I don't know. Uh, speculation on my part. The Bible doesn't tell us. But uh, if you have any ideas, I'd love to hear those. On the uh, Facebook group page. Verses 27 through 30, uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is the Old Testament Hebrew word. Christ, uh, Christos, is the Greek word. It's the same thing. And it simply referred to Jesus being the long awaited king, the anointed one that was coming to reign. And so Peter was confessing that Jesus was the anointed one, the long-awaited king who was coming to reign. In verses 31 through 33, Jesus tells about his death and his resurrection. Uh, and Peter just says, no way. <laughs> it's not going to happen to you. I'm not going to let this happen to you, Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says in Mark 8, 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. He was looking at Peter because of what Peter had just said. What did Peter just say? Lord, you're not going to do this. You're not going to have to die. You're not going to have to rise again. Peter didn't mean anything by it. But yet Jesus looked at Peter and said, Satan is influencing you. Satan was not in Peter, but Satan was influencing him. 
Friend, I just want you to know that it is so, it would be so easy for Satan to be able to use us if we do not grow in biblical wisdom and if we are not constantly yielded to the submission and leadership of the Holy Spirit. We've got to have a mind that is gaining uh, a biblical worldview from much exposure and study of God's Word, but also we submit to the Holy Spirit. So it's the, the Holy Spirit and the Word. Um, and uh, this, this was not going on with Peter. He did not understand uh, all that needed to happen to the Messiah. And so Satan was influencing him, and Peter was saying, Something that, that was not true, was not true. So anyway, we've just got to be so careful not to let Satan use us. In verses 34 through 38, uh, we come to, once again, a uh, passage of Scripture. One of the things that, a passage of Scripture that talks about the cross, talks about this, the cost of discipleship. Um, and if, uh, you know, I think a, a classic book, uh, about the cost of discipleship is a book by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, he was a German theologian. He was slightly liberal, uh, but uh, some of his writings are just wonderful and they're classic. And and there's I, there's really no liberalism in it, at least that I've seen. And one of them is a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called uh, called this book The Cost of Discipleship. And in there, he digs into the fact that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he bids us to come and die. Die to ourself, and if needs be, die for him. Uh, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in fact, was one of the last persons to be killed under the Third Reich. Uh, as the Americans and as the Allied forces were, were coming in, uh, they were just quickly going through their final list of those that they wanted to make sure would not survive the, uh, um, the reign of the Third Reich. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those that they intentionally made sure that he was killed. Uh, but he wrote a wonderful book about how that so many people believe in cheap grace cheap grace. Now, we believe in free grace. We do not believe in cheap grace. He said that free grace is God freely bestowing upon us forgiveness and cleansing of sin and uh, renewal in a relationship with him and all of this. It's free. Grace is free. But he said that we've taken what is free and we've made it cheap. He said cheap grace is the uh, forgiveness of the cross without the expectation of following Christ. It's the uh, desire to be forgiven without a craving to pursue holiness, you know? And, uh, you know, some of the passages that really influenced him would have been passages like Mark 8, 34 and 35, when Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, just have them say a prayer and, and ask him ask me to come into their heart and save them, and the deal is done. Is that what Jesus said? No, he did not. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. How many people do you know? How many people do you know that profess to be followers of Jesus? How many people do you know of that group that actually is known for 
denying themselves. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, let him deny himself. Say no to him so that they can say yes to me. But also, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross? What's that mean? It means acknowledge God's rulership over us, that we who once broke his laws are now under his authority, under his cross, that we, in fact, gladly and humbly submit to his authority over our life, and our life no longer belongs to us. We see that it no longer belongs to us. It was bought at a price, and so we live for the Lord Jesus. We apply Matthew 6.33. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what our life is about. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Then it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to say no to yourself, to your desire, to your wants, to your needs, because you're saying yes to me, and you're also going to live under my authority. But friend, I also want you to know that this is not necessarily a bad thing, because if we truly grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to be saying no to ourselves less. Why? Because our desires are going to be more and more in tune with Jesus. We're going to want what he wants. And so since our answer is always going to be yes to him, we find ourselves saying yes to ourselves because our heart wants the same thing he wants. Do you see what I'm saying? And so Jesus is saying, if you genuinely want to be a follower, if you genuinely want to be saved, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Your life's not yours anymore. It's not about you. It's about me, Jesus says, and I want you to live under my authority. But then Jesus says in verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you live your life for yourself and only for yourself here in this life, you'll get to the end of it and stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and realize that you wasted your life. But he said, whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel We'll save it. Jesus said, lose your life. You know what that means? That means you don't live it for yourself. You're living it for Jesus. You're living it for him. You're living it for others. That when you do that, you're going to realize that you, in so doing, have saved your life. Now, is that the way that we get saved? No. What's Jesus saying? That's the way saved people live. That's the way saved people live. You want to demonstrate the fact that you have been saved, then don't live for yourself. Live for the Lord and live for others. Live in obedience to the, to the word of the Lord. Live in submission uh, and in reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, you will enjoy hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that you are worthy of whatever it is that we give up. Lord, you're like the treasure in the field in the parable that you told. You're like the treasure in the field that when we find you, we, we run away and sell everything that we've got in order to go back and buy that field because you were so valuable. You were worth more than anything that we currently have. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not say no to us and yes to you out of duty, but I pray that instead that we would say no to us and yes to you 
out of love for you and the joy of serving you and the joy of experiencing you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to grow in our walk with you, to enjoy you, and in so doing, to be used by you to influence the the people around us, our family members, our church friends, the students that we mingle with at school, uh, the, the co-workers that we have at work. Lord, help us to be used by you to influence them to Christ. And Lord, I pray that if you provide us the opportunity to share the gospel, we will take it to tell them how they can trust in Jesus to forgive them and save them. We do pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've come to the end of another time, another episode, as we have looked at some chapters in the Old Testament and a chapter in the New. I hope you're enjoying this time together. I know that I'm enjoying this time with you, and I'm looking forward to spending time with you again tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.